And she didn't just love making people laugh. She loved people who made other people laugh. She once said, if one more female comedian comes up to me and says, you open the doors for me, I want to say, fuck you. I'm still opening the doors for you. Good luck finding someone as bold and as brave as Joan Rivers. Chelsea Handler inducting Joan Rivers into the hall at the inaugural Netflix is a Joke Festival. It's an event to honor legends in the world of stand-up comedy. And there's no denying Joan fits that bill. That event is now streaming on Netflix, but we're here to uncover even more about those greats. I'm Cristela Alonzo, and I'm so excited to do this podcast series. We're doing a deep dive into the lives and careers of four comedy titans. George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Robin Williams... And in this episode, Joan Rivers. We have some amazing, funny people joining me to talk about the genius of Joan Rivers. You'll hear from people like Susie Essman, Sherry Shepard, Ellie Kemper, Aisha Tyler, Mario Cantone, Joan Rivers' daughter, Melissa, and more. Let's dive in. Three days after Joan Rivers died in 2014, Chris Rock sat down for an interview with The Hollywood Reporter. At that point, a lot of people were asking whether she was the greatest woman comedian of all time. And when the topic came up during the interview, Rock gave his take. I know people are like, oh, Joan Rivers broke down all these barriers for women, blah, blah, blah. And I say that I think it's a disservice to even group her in anything. Joan Rivers is one of the greatest stand-up comedians to ever she's like live. Rickles. Yes. She's a female Rickles. She's, she's better than Rickles. Don't put Joan Rivers in a box. One of the greatest stand-up comedians to ever live. Man or woman. Pretty much everyone we talked to said the same thing. To sum up Joan, she's really fucking funny. She's just really drop-dead funny. She was. There are people who are just truly funny. They can't help themselves. And that was her. That, of course, is Susie Essman. Now, you might know her from Curb Your Enthusiasm, which Joan Rivers was once on. And what Essman said is so true. Rivers was, hands down, one of the funniest people out there. She wasn't just a great woman comic. She was a great comic, period. But at the same time, you can't ignore that Rivers was a trailblazing woman in comedy. So when I set out to do this episode, I wanted to honor that part of her story too. But I realized it wouldn't be that simple. As soon as I brought up the F word. Do you think of Joan Rivers as a feminist icon as much as she is a comedic icon? No. Her material was very retro from a feminist perspective. You know, very retro from a feminist perspective. But I, I, mean, I, mean, I knew my husband for years, which is interesting because he never paid any attention to me. We went to the same school. We went to a progressive school, the Fanny Hill and Dale Country Day. And, uh, he never noticed me because I was a very ugly... I was a fat child. Not ugly so much, but like fat, you know? Like, like fat. <laughs> like, I was my own buddy at camp. You know, that's- There's no denying she was retro, especially her early stuff. But after Esmon took a beat, she explained that to figure out whether Joan Rivers was a feminist, you have to look at her life in context. And you can't just look at her material. Her example of just her being was as a feminist because of how she lived her life. 
as a powerful, strong woman who completely takes charge and takes control of her life. So there was a dichotomy there. She always said, oh my God, don't call me a feminist. If you call me a feminist, I can see the ticket sales flying out the window. Leslie Bennett is a veteran journalist. She spent decades covering politics and the entertainment industry. And in 2016, she wrote a biography of Joan Rivers called Last Girl Before Freeway. She says that to fully appreciate Joan Rivers, you have to consider the world she came from. She was born Joan Malinsky in 1933, and her parents were Russian immigrants. She grew up in Brooklyn, and her father, although he was a doctor, was spectacularly unsuccessful financially. And the mother had delusions of grandeur and loved to buy expensive things and was very disappointed in her husband's inability to provide. So money was a constant tension in their household. But Bennett says that as a little girl, Rivers was more distressed by a different issue. Joan's, you know, primal drama was the fact that she was made to feel inadequate. She wasn't particularly pretty, and she was chubby and not popular with boys. Rivers was desperate for approval, and she discovered at an early age that one place she could find it was on the stage at school. She was cast in a play as the pretty bunny, and she had these... I think, pink felt bunny ears. And she got up on stage and she made the audience laugh. And for her, the way she described it, it it was like giving somebody, you know, heroin. And she instantly became an addict and was chasing that high for the rest of her life. But as Rivers entered her teenage years, her mother was much less concerned with seeing her on stage than under the chuppah. She was brought up in these pre-feminist times when the measure of a girl's success was who she married. And in a family like hers, it was very important that he be Jewish. And to make that happen, Joan's mother had a strategy. When the girls were of a certain age, she decided they needed to get out of the city. She wanted her daughters to marry well. So she moved them to a place she thought would be swimming in high-class eligible bachelors. The rarefied suburbs of Westchester, New York. And so they bought a nice house in Larchmont. Joan always claimed that her mother painted everything in the kitchen, including the appliances, pink because it reflected a more flattering light on her daughter's faces when potential suitors came to call. And the mother saw that as the kind of frame for this picture she was trying to uh, paint of what the family life had been and what the well-bred daughters were going to be like. It was pretty much expected that Rivers would get married and conform to the norms of the early 1950s. But Rivers was intent on performing, not stand-up, though. She had her sights set on dramatic roles. She was going to be the great you know, actress, and I'm going to work, you know, one day with Olivier. That's Joan's daughter, Melissa. But there was a problem with her acting dreams. Nobody would cast her. So Melissa says Joan started experimenting with stand-up. She was always funny. Yeah. And she was always making everybody laugh. And it just kind of, I mean, you know that. You just kind of throw everything at the wall Mm -hmm. at one point, and that's where she fit. Hey, a girl's got to make a buck, and it's right before the poll. (laughs) Exactly. The last stop before the poll. (laughs) If you want to be on stage. 
Even in comedy, Joan faced constant rejection, but she was determined. She started spending a lot of time trying to do stand-up in the village in downtown New York. But since there were hardly any other women who had done stand-up before her, she was basically figuring it out on her own. Susie Esmond was struck by how hard that must have been, especially back in those days. You know, her family was not supportive of her at all. Mm. In the early years when she was playing the Café Wa and the Bitter End and, and all those places in the village. And she really struggled and sacrificed for her art. And I always felt this when I would watch Mrs. Maisel, for example. I was like, why? what's the motivation for this woman to be doing this? She's got a beautiful apartment. She's got the, the parents take care of the kid, you know, whatever. I didn't see the motivation because for stand-up, to get up there and do it, especially as a woman, and especially as a woman in those days, it had to be life or death. And, you know, Joan slept in her car because she had nowhere to live. Joan Rivers' biographer, Leslie Bennett, says her research backed up what Esmond was saying. Rivers' parents couldn't have been more embarrassed. They were actually mortified by her ambitions when she appeared at their country club one Saturday night, they were so humiliated by how awful they thought she was that they tried to sneak out the kitchen door so they wouldn't have to face their friends. And I believe it was actually that night she had a huge screaming fight with them and stormed out of the house and took her car and she drove at like two miles an hour down the driveway and then down the road thinking they were going to come after her and they didn't. And as Esmond said, she did sleep in her car. I think she might have slept in her car that night, but it was not as though she was, you know, this girl was homeless. Um, But those were hard years. Rivers was in a tough place. Her stand-up was going nowhere, and she had no support system. She was getting encouragement basically nowhere. And it was only her absolutely indomitable nature and her refusal to take no for an answer that kept her going all those years. And it was a lot of years because she was well into her 30s before she became an overnight success. By the 1960s, Rivers had spent thousands of hours in comedy clubs bombing. And eventually, she figured out what worked for her. Susie Esmond remarked on how well she knew her stage persona. I mean, Joan had her voice and her point of view. Whether you liked it or not, it was completely consistent. And I think that's one of the most important things to be as a comic, is to have a recognizable voice that nobody else has. And it takes years to develop that and figure out what that is. Ricky Stern directed a documentary about Joan Rivers called A Piece of Work. She spent a year with Rivers and a ton of time going through archives of her old material. Some of her early comedy was really surprising for someone of my generation to see because it was so groundbreaking. She talked about abortion, but she would sort of allude to it. The woman is 32 years old. She had 14 appendectomies, if you know what I'm telling you. (laughs) You know, back and forth to Puerto Rico. Like, ah, the woman's on the plane going back and forth to Puerto Rico, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know. And she would say that you know, she was reprimanded by mostly men. And they would say, you really can't say that. You know, you have to sort of stay in line as a woman. Rivers didn't mind offending her audience to get a laugh. But she was also practical and knew she had to have some TV-friendly material. 
she started getting gigs on shows like Candid Camera and The Ed Sullivan Show. But there was one show in the mid-60s that was the holy grail to stand-up comedians. In 1965, after auditioning seven or eight times, Rivers finally got a big break. A chance to perform on comedy's biggest stage. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Ricky Stern describes that breakthrough moment. Johnny Carson really found her in many ways. He put her on the show. They had this wonderful rapport. He was his own complicated self, but for some reason he really liked Joan, and she had a way of kind of making him laugh. And at the end of her first Tonight Show appearance, a moment happened that Rivers would later refer to as career Viagra. She and Johnny Carson reminisced about it on The Tonight Show some 20 years later. He deflected Rivers' claim that he was responsible for her career. We can, I can only take credit for, for putting on the show, but I did say one thing that night, which I have seldom said on this show over the years. You finished your routine. And you were devastating, and the audience was just falling apart. And you walked over and sat down, and I said, you know, you're going to be a big star. I remember And that's that. something you don't say, because it always sounds like, you know, you're just... And I looked behind me. I couldn't believe you were talking to me. Yeah. For Rivers, that moment was like a lightning strike. It totally transformed her career. And her life was taking off in other ways, too. That same year, she got married to a man named Edgar Rosenberg. Joan focused on her comedy and she let her husband handle the business end of her thriving career. She traveled all over the country, sharing the stage with big-time comedians and popular musicians, and she'd be one of the few women doing stand-up shows on the Vegas Strip. And after a few years, another business partner and eventual collaborator came into the picture. She went into labor on stage. So I suppose (laughs) that was the original collaboration. Melissa said, in the Rivers house, everyone had a role to play in her mother's continued success. We always referred to it as the career. You know, like capital T, capital C. And everybody was was working to the same end. It was a family business. And that included my father's producing and us. And it was the three of us. And it was always the career. And one of the downsides of being part of the family business? you could always end up in Joan's routines. Melissa's 15 years old, and I figured today we better talk about the facts of life. I was talking to Melissa today. I said, ask me anything you want to know, you know? So she said to me, what should I do when a guy gets fresh? I said, send him to me. But no. (laughs) Did it feel awkward growing up and knowing that your mother could write jokes about you? When you're a teenager, it's just simply horrifying. I'm sure that exactly, right? It is horrifying. And it was always... You know, I wouldn't necessarily know these were coming. And then the next day at school, everyone would be like, you know. And you're like, I'd be on the like, what do you say? And it wasn't intentional to sure. embarrass me. And if you really look at my people used to always say, she makes so much fun of your dad. And my father used to rightly say, she's like, does that upset you? He's like, if you really listen to the joke, she's always the butt of it. But my husband and I no longer see eye to eye. He doesn't find me sexually attractive anymore. Okay, you, you want to know the truth? Last night I said to him, do you find me sexy? He said, I'd rather not find you at all. And that was always the same with me. The joke wasn't on me. The joke was having to do with her. 
After appearing on The Tonight Show in 1965, Joan's career continued to pick up steam. Her decades of struggle and hard work continued to pay off, and she became one of the select few comedians who would fill in for Johnny on his nights off. None of the other guest hosts pulled in as high of ratings as Rivers did. Over the next two decades, Joan Rivers would go on to appear on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show nearly 100 times. And by 1983, Joan Rivers was anointed the show's permanent guest host. Here's Joan Because sometimes you come out here and you think, oh, they're going to be a bad audience. And then all the bad clubs I ever worked with come back in my mind. Because I started out, I worked clubs. I, I, I worked a mafia club. We passed the hat. Pieces of Jimmy Hoffa would come back. Just... The fact that she was guest hosting The Tonight Show. I was huge. I mean. It was huge. People don't understand the bigness of it. The monumental... Yeah achievement that that was. And and much more then than now. For those millennials and Gen Z folks listening, Susie Essman explains how late-night TV shows today are nothing like they were back then. You know, that was it, The Tonight Show. I mean, you know, now there's there's no show that's it. There's there's great shows. And, you know, it's all... I I love Jimmy Kimmel, and I love Seth, and I love Fallon. But there's, there's not the it factor that there was then and how Johnny could make or break your career. When Joan would guest host The Tonight Show, that was like a big deal at our house. Barry Posnick is a television producer and executive. He grew up in the 1980s and remembers watching Rivers sub for Johnny Carson. Those nights, I believe it was Monday nights, I would get to stay up late and watch The Tonight Show with my mom. And I got to watch it with Johnny a lot, too. And I loved late night, but the Joan nights were always so much more unpredictable and special. Many Tonight Show viewers and people in the media made the assumption that even though Rivers was only eight years younger than Johnny Carson, she had become his hand-picked successor to take over The Tonight Show when he retired. But Joan's husband and manager-producer, Edgar Rosenberg, wasn't as sure she would be the one. And on top of that, there were disputes about how much she was being paid for her work at The Tonight Show. As these doubts about Joan's future at NBC arose in Rosenberg's mind, a brand new television network was being launched and was set to premiere in 1984. The Fox Network's chairman and CEO at the time, Barry Diller, was looking to fill the airwaves with exciting talent. Diller reached out to Rosenberg and made a multi-million dollar offer to Joan Rivers to woo her away from NBC and start her own late night show at the brand new Fox Network. Diller and her husband were ultimately able to convince Rivers to take Fox's offer. The Late Show with Joan Rivers' time slot was in direct competition with Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. When Rivers broke the news to Carson before the premiere, he did not take it well. Documentarian Ricky Stern says that the fallout with Carson was one of the most painful professional experiences Rivers would ever endure. The way she tells it is that Johnny Carson basically cut her out of his life and said, if you're going to go do this, 
you know, you're never welcome back on my show or late night and certainly not on NBC. And um, it really hurt Joan. She didn't understand why, as she was given this opportunity, she should be making enemies. I mean, she was just offered an opportunity that if you look at today and you look at the trajectory of these young comedians, these young male comedians uh, who were given opportunity to take over late night shows, you know, it's business, right? It's your job. It's your profession. But it was different then for her. And there was this resentment. And that really was hard for her. As much as people love Joan Rivers and her stand-up and as a guest host of The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson was perhaps the most respected man in showbiz at the time and the most powerful. And many saw Rivers as being disloyal to a man who gave her a huge break in her career. Barry Posnick was torn, but understood why Joan chose to move to Fox. Being a huge fan of Johnny Carson's and then of Joan Rivers, and then when Joan left The Tonight Show to go do her own show, I was like, I was team Joan. I still love The Tonight Show and I love Johnny, but I was like, this is something new and fresh and exciting. Live from Fox Television Center in Hollywood, it's The Late Show starring Joan Rivers. Joan gets tonight at David Lee Roth, Posnick remembers those first episodes of River's new Fox show when it premiered in October of 1986. So I was really excited, and I remember her opening, you know, her premiere episode, and I just remember watching it being like, holy shit, this is, like, iconic. Ladies and gentlemen, my favorite boy in the whole world, Mr. Pee Wee Herman. I can't believe I'm actually on your show. It's so exciting. I mean, you know, I, I grew up on this show, really. You know, watching this show. It's so exciting. I think I was probably conceived during your show. I had my first kiss during your show. First time I ever had my first, you know, sexual encounter was while watching your show. I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but tonight's the first night. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I knew that tonight backstage was my very first sexual encounter. But the Fox show did not have a big audience. And Fox executive Barry Diller was passing along notes to the producer, who was River's husband, Edgar Rosenberg, and Rosenberg essentially ignored them. Whether he was just disagreed with them, whether he was protecting Joan, whether he was scared of Joan and didn't want to tell her, whether he had, I, I don't know, but for whatever reasons... The notes weren't getting implemented, and it ultimately created a lot of tension between Barry Diller, who was running the network, and Joan, who was their biggest star. Leslie Bennett said that things finally came to a head behind the scenes. Barry Diller told Joan to fire him. She said, I can't fire him because he's my husband. Barry Diller said, if you don't fire him, I'll fire both of you. And Joan thought he was bluffing, and he wasn't bluffing. So Barry Diller fired both of them. And Edgar was so humiliated that he checked into the Four Seasons Hotel in Philadelphia and killed himself. And Joan woke up. She's now approaching her 55th birthday, middle-aged woman, pariah in show business, the woman who betrayed Johnny Carson. And all of a sudden, Joan couldn't get a job of any kind for anything. And to make matters worse, she found that Edgar had 
not only squandered her entire fortune, but that she was $37 million in debt. So she was entirely washed up in her mid-50s and came very close, she claimed, to killing herself. But it was really, I think, not in her nature and managed to have one of the great comeback stories in entertainment industry history in terms of what she did in the second half of her life as a performer. Joan couldn't afford to wallow. She was millions of dollars in debt, and she had to make money to provide for her daughter. So she hit the road, and as Melissa explained, that's never an easy thing to do. First of all, anyone who's a road comic, it's a grind. Yes. And it's not glamorous, and it's not exciting, and you're staying in crappy places and working all sorts of weird hours and waking up in strange city after strange city, not necessarily remembering where you are. And I think for women, it is much harder. As soon as River stepped back on stage, she could feel the elephant in the room. Her audiences knew what had happened in her family. And in a very Joan Rivers way, she decided to address it head on. When I finally came back after uh, my husband killed himself, I went on stage the first time. It was a very big room in Las Vegas. And you knew that they were all, they knew what was wrong. So I just walked out and said, my husband killed himself. First joke. And um, it was my fault. We were making love and I took the bag off my head. And... That was her therapy, really, to, to be able to take the deepest, darkest, most awful moments of one's life and have people laugh at it, you know? And as she said, if you can't laugh at that, you know, what are you gonna laugh at? While she was rebuilding her career, Rivers often deliberately shocked her audience. And joking about her husband's suicide wasn't the only way she did it. I think, I think she, as she said, a well-placed fuck was, you know, like comedy genius. And I think that was some of it. She was always sort of like, if I say this provocative line, is it gonna be, am I gonna get a laugh? Is it gonna be the right kind of laugh? And, and like, she would just let it rip. Stern and her documentary team followed Rivers around for over a year. And they watched her walk that tightrope over and over again. In one memorable scene from their movie, Rivers is performing at a venue in rural Wisconsin when she gets heckled. And when she decides to respond, you can almost hear the tension in the room. Oh, I hate children. The only child that I think I would have liked ever was Helen Keller because she didn't talk. It is just... Yes, it is. And if you don't, then leave. I happen to have a deaf mother. Oh, you stupid ass. Let me tell you what comedy is about. Oh, please. You are so stupid. Comedy is to make everybody laugh at everything and deal with things, you idiot. My mother is deaf, you stupid son of a bitch. Don't tell me. And just in case you can hear me in the hallway, I lived for nine years with a man with one leg. Okay, you asshole, and we're going to talk about what it's like to have a man with one leg who lost it in World War II and then went back to get it, because that's fucking littering. <laughs> so don't you tell me what's funny. 
Rivers wasn't afraid to say wildly offensive things on stage. To the casual observer, it could almost seem like she couldn't help herself, like she had no filter. Barry Posnick worked with her on many shows, and he says she was deliberate about when she crossed the line. It was always really fun collaborating with her and kind of figuring out where the line is. If she didn't think it was funny enough, then she would deem it not appropriate. If it could make the crowd laugh, then she would do it. And that meant 9-11, that meant Holocaust, like anything. And if it could get the laugh, it wasn't off limits. But Rivers didn't always win over the people she had offended. Some of the jokes she made in the 80s were divisive even then. And they haven't aged much better. For example, here's one of the hundreds of jokes she wrote about Elizabeth Taylor's weight. Yes, that's why I went for the... I mean, she was fat. Not, who's going to tell you if not your good friend? She had her ears pierced, gravy came out. I mean, this woman is just... That whole Elizabeth Taylor thing, when she went after Elizabeth Taylor's weight and the fatness, that disappointed me. Because I, this is coming from somebody who's known, you know, in her comedy for calling my husband a fat fuck. But that's different. That's a character yes. thing. Again, that's comedian Susie Essman. But in her stand-up, it disappointed me because I felt as though she was so much better than that. She was so much wittier and smarter than doing just fat joke material, which I felt was kind of mean. In the 80s, Rivers was in her own personal wilderness. And she said yes to all kinds of jobs. Some of them were pretty random. She was a center square on a Hollywood Squares reboot. She did a TV comedy called How to Murder a Millionaire. And if you were a kid back then, you might have heard her narrating a segment or two on the children's show, The Electric Company. Here he comes now, faster than a rolling O, stronger than Silent E, able to leap capital T in a single bound. It's a word, it's a plan. It's Letterman. Being up for anything had its rewards. Rivers did get parts in some memorable films. They weren't the kinds of movies she might have dreamt about doing as a kid, but she still got to act opposite a pretty iconic star. Get your new French perfume here, Kettle de France. Is there more? Can we talk? No, no, I'll be fine. I'll be just, yeah. Sorry. Get your Kettle de France. It's French. It's feminine. It'll help you grab one of those rotten, stinking men. Kettle de France. Hey, please. The Muppets Take Manhattan is one of my favorite movies. So just well, even to see her. You know? The Godfather. Yes. The Godfather 2. Psycho. Oh, I know. You know and, and when you think, and then, of course, in that top 10 list, right at the bottom, yes. I'm not going to say it's in the top 10, but usually coming in at 11 is Muppets Take Manhattan. Look, when we talk about Scorsese, I always say, can we please mention Spaceballs too? Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Stanley Kubrick and Spaceballs. You can draw the connection. If Joan's goal during that time was to be relevant, her hard work paid off. She eventually found her way back to hosting a daytime talk show called The Joan Rivers Show. It ran for a few seasons and even earned her an Emmy. From the outside looking in, it appeared the career was back on track. But Rivers was still processing the death of her husband. Seven years after his suicide, she and her daughter, Melissa, chose to take on a project that hit close to home. Oh, yeah. I absolutely remember it. Sherry Shepard is a comedian and a former co-host of The View. She remembers watching this made-for-TV movie back in the 90s called Tears and Laughter, the Joan and Melissa River story. You can probably guess what it's about based on the title. 
But the Cliff Notes version is that it follows the life of a stand-up comedian and her daughter dealing with a family tragedy. They, they didn't cast somebody to play Joan and Melissa. They starred in it themselves. I can't stop thinking about him. That I was never going to see me graduate. Never see what I do with my life. The kind of person I grow up to be. Never meet the man I'm going to marry. Get to know my children. Shepard didn't know Rivers back then, but she still remembers being moved by the story. I thought, wow, how vulnerable, just as an actress. And I think that it would have been easy for somebody like Joan Rivers to kind of go away, kind of fade away, but she didn't. She fought back and she learned to take control of her destiny. That same year, Joan and Melissa found other ways to work together on the red carpet. Anyway, what's an evening on the red carpet if you can't share it with someone you love and who loves you in return, someone who respects you and appreciates you, someone you can wet the bed with? Well, my dog Max couldn't be here tonight, but instead I've got my wonderful daughter, Marika, Melissa. Well, you know, I mean, she just, she would have those conversations with people on the carpet about what they were doing and what they were wearing. Aisha Tyler is a comedian and actor. She worked with Joan at the E! Network during this time. Joan kind of was excited about fashion, but she wasn't dazzled by it. And she wanted the average viewer to be able to be a part of that conversation with her. Um, so it never felt as if, oh, well, these people are better than you just because they have one fancy shoes. Let's, you know, and, and you know, she would make fun of people. And, and that was a part of it. And they would always do the post show where they would kind of dress people down. And it, it just felt like you were having, you know, a martini with a best friend. Catherine Heigl, and she was in Escada. I thought she looked so beautiful, I could give her for being so boring on Grey's Anatomy. Johnny Depp. Best I've seen him look in a while. Like, yeah. he doesn't look like a total whack job. Don't well, make that say. face at me, you know. Well, first of all, the man is four foot three. No, he's Let's not. Start. He's so not. You can pick okay. him up and put him next to the Oscar. They'd be the same size. Anne Hathaway. She has got that alabaster skin, and rumor had it, she had spent hours covered with leeches to get that veil. Really? Yeah. Jessica Alba, um, you know, just because you're pregnant, you know, you don't have to dress like Barney. When I talked with Melissa, I asked her about what it was like working with her mom. Uh, obviously, being, you know, mother-daughter doesn't mean that it translates into a partnership that can work with chemistry because that on-screen chemistry is completely different. It's totally different, and I used to joke that she was that good that she gave birth to her own straight man. <laughs> oh, that's a great line. I love yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, now that is forward thinking. Oh. <laughs> I was born rolling my eyes on cue. <laughs> on the red carpet, Joan was ruthless, and some celebrities got offended. But when the cameras were off, every single person we interviewed told us Joan's persona was different. Mario Cantone is a comedian and actor, and he has a theory about why that was. It's always the mean comedians on stage that are the nice ones off stage. That's the truth. The nice, nice ones on stage that you kind of, you go, mm, you meet them, and they're not. And he says Joan was no exception. She was very forthcoming and very, very personal and warm. And I can see it all in my head right now, too, just thinking about it. And 
she was just, I loved her. For someone who was so, you know, um, appeared to be mean and acerbic and shocking, she could not have been kinder. You might recognize Ellie Kemper from her roles on The Office and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Back in 2013, Kemper was a guest on River's web show. The name of the show, In Bed with Joan, and we started the same way all the time. The show always opened with a sticky intro. I look to the closet and I say, I wonder who's coming out of my closet today. The guest comes out of the bedroom closet and goes and sits in bed with her. She's already perched there. You're kind of, you're just reclined, you know, halfway back. And you just talk about anything. Because it all comes down to family. Yeah. Where, where do you spend Thanksgiving? Oh, um, well. She, uh, I talked about The Office because at the time I was on The Office and I had just gotten oh, married. There you go. So why is there no ring? Oh, there, oh, there is. You just couldn't see it. No, I couldn't. <laughs> it's his grandma's. It's his grandma's. His grandma <laughs> obviously didn't expect much. It was as though I already knew her. And I know it's in bed, so it's like intimate already. But I mean, it was like a slumber party with an old friend. She always has a special place in my heart, though I only met her the one time because I could feel her good heart. You've been just a joy and a pleasure. Oh, thank you so a joy much. And a this has been a joy and a pleasure. It remains one of the loveliest days that I ever spent. Ellie Kemper, ladies and gentlemen. Aisha Tyler also remembered the way Rivers would support other actors and comedians. Especially as she got older, it was really important to her to create space for other comedians, other people, uh, you know, women, people of color, other underrepresented artists. She really worked so hard to give a lot of love and energy to the queer community. And I really remember thinking she had left behind a really beautiful wide wake for a lot of people to step into. And it wasn't just comedians who loved Rivers behind the scenes. Her colleagues at QVC also had glowing things to say. That included Jill Bauer. She and Rivers hosted a show together on the channel. The cool thing about Joan was when you spent time with her at QVC, she knew everybody. She remembered things about people's lives. When I would walk into the green room before one of our shows, it was not so much about let's go through the product. Although Joan was all business and that business was very important to her. But more important to her was people. So she was amazing that way. She really believed in connection. She valued people deeply, and she knew how to make everybody feel like they mattered. But Bauer says Rivers wasn't just a charmer. She was a savvy businesswoman and one of the network's top sellers. Listen, there were plenty of celebrities who had products on QVC, and there were plenty of times when sitting next to them, it was the very first time they'd seen their product. They didn't know what to say about it. It was simply a name on a whatever, not Joan. Joan knew the story about everything. She approved everything. We found a recording of the two of them working together in 2014. They're trying to sell some cheap replicas of royal jewelry. And they're giving it their all. It's the closest thing that you're going to get to museum looks of elegant royal crown jewels in more affordable price ranges. And that's really what Signer has been about for 100 years. For 100, and to make you know that it's special, we send it to you in a special box. Nice. And we send it to you in a special presentation box. 
inside. I, you know, we're so proud to be part of this that oh. it comes beautifully Amazing. done. It's Amazing. Just, I mean, it wasn't so just River's commitment to moving product that left an impression on Bowers. It was her generosity. She told us about this one time they were on a work trip together in London. So we were all out to dinner together and, you know, she wanted to make sure like I had this family atmosphere because I was so far away from home. She walked me out to my cab that night and then she stuck a 20 pound note in my hand and she said, because it never hurts to have a little extra. And, and, and away I went, you know, so she she was incredible. I, I if you can't tell it in my voice, I adored her. I, I truly adored her. And Rivers' generosity didn't stop with the people she knew. Barry Posnick told us about a time he was on a shoot with Rivers in New Orleans, and she extended her hand to a total stranger. Literally a homeless guy who was like um, in a sideways refrigerator box laying there. And I can picture it like it was yesterday. He was laying there on his elbow and just kind of looking outside his box. And he goes, holy shit, is that Joan Rivers? And I mean, I died and Joan looks over and she goes, get out of that box, get up here. She gives him a big hug. She goes, who's got my purse? And I'm like, oh my God. So I'm like scrambling with the crew to find her purse. We find her purse. She takes out her wallet. She hands him some money. And he goes, you made my day, Joan Rivers. And she goes, you made my day. Sherry Shepard told us about how Rivers could be someone you could lean on when things got hard. That's what makes me emotional. What I will always remember is when I was released from The View I got an email from Joan and she said, you're going to work. This was just, the, you know, learn from it and you're going to work. And I emailed her back and I said, Joan, I'm just scared. Like, I don't know if Hollywood will remember me because I've been on the show for so long. And she said, let me tell you something. Funny girls always work. And I emailed her back and I said, Joan, you promise? And she said, I promise. And I've always worked. We've played a lot of old tape of Rivers in this episode. And you might have noticed her voice getting raspier over the decades. In the fall of 2014, she wanted to have her voice checked out. So she made an appointment with a doctor to find out what was wrong. Leslie Bennett tells the story of what happened next. She was kind of the victim of celebrity medicine, because if you're a celebrity, people, you know, make exceptions to rules that, in fact, can uh, be the worst thing that could happen to you, even though they're giving you special treatment. And she had this endoscopy at a clinic. Her voice person was there, although not licensed to practice at that clinic. And the problem is that when... When it all went wrong, if she had been in a hospital setting, she could quite likely have been saved. But because she was not in a hospital, by the time they were able to get her to a hospital, her brain had been deprived of oxygen. The prognosis was not looking good for Joan. So Melissa started to reach out to beloved friends and colleagues like Barry Posnick. Melissa called and said, um, you should come to New York. And um, I was like, okay. I said, well, what can I do? And, you know, how can I help? And she was like, no, um, you should just come and say goodbye. And I remember getting to the hospital and seeing Melissa and her hugging me and just like kind of ushering me right into the room. And they had show tunes playing because Joan loved the theater. And I remember when I walked in, it was um, Oklahoma. 
was the song playing. And um, it was like so kind of upbeat and festive. And the room, they had brought artwork from Joan's house because she had an amazing art collection that they hung on the walls. And then she was laying there fully made up, hair, but hooked up to a ventilator. And I was like, I I can't do this. Like, I can't. And I just started breaking down because um, it was just the idea of being part of a roller coaster ride with somebody who was just like, we had to keep up with Joan at all times. She was like a lead follow or get out of the way kind of personality. And I loved it. And the idea that um, something could take somebody like that down, um, that was, you know, completely avoidable, was crazy. And I couldn't believe it. And I just remember leaving there and sitting outside with so many other people from her inner circle and just all like comatose. Joan Rivers died on September 4th, 2014 in New York City. When the news broke to the wider world, her former colleagues at QVC had a hard time accepting that their friend was gone. We couldn't believe it. We couldn't, we couldn't believe it. We were all on our phones and we're like, did you see this? Did you see it? Is this re- is, this isn't real. This is is it real? Really sad. At the time of her death, Joan Rivers was just as popular as she had ever been. She was 81 years old but hadn't slowed down. And as sad as the news of her passing was for the people who loved her, her funeral was a proper celebration. A memorial service for comedian Joan Rivers was held today here in New York, and it delivered on her wishes for a true Hollywood-style send-off. Everything from A-list celebrities to red carpet treatment. Many of her close friends and colleagues were there, including some of the people you've heard in this episode. They did everything that Joan would have wanted, it, you know, including having, you know, Hugh Jackman serenade her. You know, it's just like down to everything. It was amazing. And, you know, Howard Stern paid tribute. And, um, you know, it was just it was just so sad that she couldn't be there to see it. The reason the funeral was so Joan? Her daughter, Melissa, was following her suggestions. In one of her books, Joan had actually written about how she wanted to go out. And it was just this absolutely outrageous, (laughs) crazy, Meryl Streep crying in six different languages. (laughs) The permanent wind machine, like Beyonce. What was the word? The uh, Harry Winston toe tag. You know, so it was just, and I printed that in the program for her funeral. I started this episode wanting to honor Rivers as a great comedian and as a groundbreaking woman in America. And even if she never would have called herself a feminist, that doesn't mean others can't see her life and legacy as a game-changing triumph. The incredible irony of Joan's life is that she did everything you can do to conform to the traditional blueprint for women's lives. She got married. She had the Mrs. Edgar Rosenberg stationery. She turned over all the business and money stuff to him. She made job choices that were bad for her because they were good for him. And it was the ruination of her. It ruined her career and her life to conform to those strictures. And the interesting thing about Joan's life to me was it was only with Edgar's death and the wreckage of her career, that those tragedies actually freed her 
for the first time to become her own true self. And Joan learned the hard way that sometimes she was better at whatever it was than the husband might have been. But also that there were undreamed of ways of being happy that transcended these very limiting gender roles that she'd been brought up in. She was free and she could make her own choices. And she made a lot of good ones and she got a lot of successes that greatly exceeded what she had done earlier in her life, but only because she was no longer handing over her agency to some husband that she assumed would be better at dictating her destiny than she was. It turned out he wasn't, and she did just fine on her own, and she had a fabulous time in that last chapter of her life. Thanks so much for listening to The Hull. If you liked our show, you can give us a follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Our next episode drops next week. The Hall Live Show is now streaming on Netflix. I'm Cristela Alonzo. The Hall is a production of Netflix Podcasts and Netflix is a Joke Radio. The show is produced by Radio Point, hosted by me, Cristela Alonzo. Executive producers are Gideon Evans, Alex Bach, Daniel Powell, Houston Snyder, and Sabrina Fonfetter. Directed by Gideon Evans. Written by Gideon Evans and David Fox. Produced by Taylor Kowalski and David Fox. Edited by David Fox. Scoring by Roddy Nickpour. Recorded by Kate Moldenhauer. Mixed by Kat Iosa. Talent booking and consulting by Cultivated Entertainment. Special thanks to Melissa Rivers, Susie Essman, Sherry Shepard, Ellie Kemper, Leslie Bennett, Barry Posnick, Ricky Stern, Jill Bauer, Mario Cantone, and Aisha Tyler. Sound services provided by Great City Post. <laughs>